Hey family, it's your sister Jocelyn here, and welcome to another episode of Faith on the Journey. If this is your first time tuning in, we welcome you. We are so glad that you are here and want you to know that we're committed to helping you strengthen your faith, heal your heart, and discover a sense of community. And we do so through a variety of ways by connecting you with a team of Christian counselors and offering trauma healing groups and trainings throughout the year. You can learn about these resources and so much more by visiting our website at faithonthejourney.org. Again, that is faithonthejourney.org. Now, today I'm excited to welcome to the show a powerhouse woman of God who has gone through her fair share of struggles, but now is using her witness to help others. I want to welcome to the show Tanya Joya, and she is a dedicated mother who knows firsthand the intricate web of lies and manipulation and empty promises that addiction weaves into families. And she's here to talk about her story, what she's learned, and what she is doing to help other people to thrive. And so I thank you so much, Tanya, for accepting my invitation. Reverend Jocelyn, thank you so much. And as I was talking to you beforehand, you have a show full of powerhouse women. So I encourage anybody who's listening to go ahead and grab her podcast. She's just, it's just amazing. But thank you for allowing me to be here and to speak about what's closest to my heart and what God has laid on my heart is the folks that are left hanging in the addiction scenario are the family. And they're also the most powerful with the healing. So thank you for the opportunity to speak about that. Oh, yes. And I can't wait to dive into this, Tanya. And and before we talk about the healing process, I would like to learn a little bit more about your backstory, kind of what led you into this work. What's your testimony? Absolutely. So when I give it for Celebrate Recovery, I call it the tale of two rings. <laughs> Because it was kind of Lord of the Rings when I wrote it. So what I had struggled with is I have a master's degree in theology. I know the history. I know those things. What I didn't have was the personal relationship with God. And I was raised in a church, went to church, did those all those things. But I still really hadn't had that, I, I want to say, almost visceral experience of knowing God. And God had some big plans for me <laughs> around that. And they didn't happen the way I wanted. So I left a marriage because I just, I didn't really understand what God had for me, went on to a whole, a thousand miles away to a whole different state to work on a guest ranch, met a man, married him, had two kids, a dog, 400 chickens, couple horses out on 20 acres in the middle of Colorado in deep snow. And five days before Christmas, my life just blew up. But the truth is, and anybody who's been in this kind of situation knows that it had been declining for a long time. And the picture that I want really want to lay out is, and it's sometimes hard for people to understand, I was just as crazy with my own mishandled, numbing out, mood altering behaviors as the person who was showing up as the prodigal. I, I, I imagine your audience understands that reference that the, the prodigal son is really a straight line. You know, he says to the father, I wish you were dead. I'm going to take my inheritance and go, and I'm going to do this riotous living. Well, my husband was on that path, but so was I as the spirit of religiosity was on me and the anger and the rage and the depression and just, we, we were both really spiritually sick. 
So I want to lay that out, that the person, I didn't cause my husband's issues, and those are his stories to to tell, but neither did he cause mine. But that, both of us having those issues, and, and I know you talk about it in your trauma work, created a trauma bond to where we're not creating two whole people coming together to make something holy, H-O-L-Y, and something whole, W-H-O-L-E, we are coming together trying to fix each other and be each other's salvation. And as you might have managed, it was a mess. It was an absolute mess. So as it began to come to a head, and, and this is the really ugly part of it. We had three and five-year-old precious little boys that were really wanted, that we just absolutely adored, but we were fighting so hard that we were in physical entanglement trying to get out to the car to see who could leave and who needed to stay with the kids. At one point, I'm going to tell you how serious this got. At one point, I was headed out the door he had brought home tobacco instead of milk. I got so angry. We were both outside. Luckily, the boys were napping that Jocelyn, I would have killed him had I had a weapon. I mean, that's think about how small that scenario is. Luckily, he handled me gently, put me on the ground in the snow and then walked off. But I went after him with everything I had, got to my workplace, called my sponsor and she said, Tanya, you will never do that again because the last thing your children need is one of you dead, the other one in prison. A half a loaf is better than no loaf. We need you to get your act together. And so I was graced by a very God-centered community, a very God-centered church. And when we did separate and what I call, um, courts, cops, and chickens, when we did have to separate because the violence between the two of us got so bad, our church surrounded us, Christian counselors surrounded us, and somehow I learned how to plow, how to stock the fire, how to feed the chickens, how to do all of those things as my husband was doing his healing and I was doing my healing. Now I'm going to fill your your people in on the end of the story. God is miraculous. He is gracious. He is there for us because we just celebrated 20 years last week. Oh, I got to celebrate. Yes. Because somebody shout with me who's listening right now. This is so big because I know that this is like maybe a little bit off topic from the show. We'll get to the topic in just a second. But when it comes to marriage, that stuff is hard work. And sometimes you go through some junk. You go through some arguments. You might have addictions. You might have infidelity. You might have all type of stuff. And you could say this relationship is over. There's no way it's coming back. But listen to this woman here. I am so happy for you all celebrating that. So I just had to take a a, a hallelujah moment for that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. And and what I want to make clear is the lies and manipulation, you know, we, we often pin that on the person who has the visibility, the prodigal, right? But the lies and the ma- manipulation were happening in both directions. I was lying to myself, and I really want your listeners to hear this. I was lying to myself in the way the righteous older brother lies to himself. I've done everything you ask. I've been here the whole time, and you owe me. That is the spirit of religiosity coming on top of you and saying, you are justified, you're sanctified, you haven't done anything wrong, and there's not, you don't have any fault in this. Well, 
Here's what I want to say, and this is really hard for families to hear, is the attic doesn't come from out of nowhere. Now, right? I married my husband. He had these issues, but I married him because I was just as sick and had that many unresolved issues. God puts you in the place that you need to to grow. So here's the next phase that I got to as we began to work through this process. We got deep into our church, our Al-Anon group. We worked with some great Christian counselors who used some processes that were just mind-blowing on the stuff that I was carrying around and the stuff that I needed to leave behind. Because when you double hip at the door and you look at your husband and you go, Jesus is coming for you, this is not the right place to be. I mean, think about it. That's probably what Job's wife did to, did to him, right? You know, <laughs> The Lord is coming for you because you did something wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And whose sin is bigger than anybody else's sin? So as we got entangled in in this, we were so far from God. Our two-legged stool was not standing. I was, this is what I coach my clients are, is don't ask the question that you know the answer to, because then you're just after punishment. If punishment got us anywhere, there would be no prisons. You know, there would be no after school program. We would have solved that problem. And what we know is that level of correction and punishment doesn't work for the addicted family. The other thing we know is if there is a person who's saying, I'm completely clean and you are completely in the wrong, we're creating this division and disconnection, which means what that person with any type of addiction issue is really looking for, it's a spiritual malady. They're looking for a connection. They're looking for a way to join in. And they found this other resource instead of the source to fill that hole. So when I say a question that I already know the answer to, I am looking to punish. I'm looking to lock them up and I'm looking to go, "Uh uh-huh. I told you, you are bad. You're shameful. You're awful. I'm not looking to give grace and mercy. Now, there's a difference between this and setting boundaries and natural consequences. But when I am looking to attack, whose role is that really? God says to us, look, it is not your role to save your husband. It's not your role to make him right before me, right? That's my role. Now, I found that I was impeding God's work. I mean, that's the heaviest piece. I was impeding God's work because I was getting between my husband and God and making this crazy, crazy mess. I think you talking to a lot of us out here, including myself, when it comes to wanting someone to to grow, to change. We can't be baby Jesus in this process and, and come in and try to save the day because you use the word punishment. I, in so many words, I say it's doing more harm than good to, to nag and beat someone up um, when they're not changing at your pace or doing things in your way. Right. But you also clarified that there's a difference between extending grace, but also having boundaries. Hey family, I'm interrupting today's episode because I have some exciting news to share. Woo! 
I'm so excited. Drum roll, please. Okay, so my new book, Sister Start Your Ministry, is out and is available for purchase on Amazon.com. Now, let me tell you something. This book was a labor of love and it's coming from years of my experience building a ministry, struggling through ministry, making mistakes through ministry, and coming across other women who were called to ministry, but they felt afraid. They felt like they didn't know what to do next. They felt like they weren't qualified and they had similar struggles that I did when I was first getting started with ministry. And so if that's you, my sister, I created this book for you to help you to be bold, to be courageous, to answer the call because the world needs you and your ministry. And so I encourage you to pick up a copy of this book. It will bless you. It'll be a good starting point, a, a great blueprint to get you going to your next level, whatever that may be. So I thank you in advance for getting a copy or two of this book at Amazon.com. So thank you so much for your support and I'll see you soon. I would like for you to talk about healthy boundaries as it relates to uh, someone who you're in partnership with or in relationship with, even if it's not romantic, who is dealing with an addiction or you see there's an issue that needs to be resolved. Sure. The first thing I always clarify for people about boundaries is they can only be things that you can control. I have these young babies. We're out on 20 acres. Um, my husband is working late in the evening. He's cooking for a living at this point in time. And when he's doing this, I am worried about where he is. We live in Colorado in the winter. I'm calling around. I'm calling friends. I'm calling bars. I'm calling places. And I'm saying, you know, can you please be home by 11? Can you please be home by 11? It makes me feel more comfortable. I can go to sleep. Then I can get up with the kids. So I took this to my Al-Anon group and they said, oh, honey, what are you going to do? He's 250 pounds. Are you going to go lift him out of the bar, carry him home? You're creating all kinds of stress for yourself because boundaries are only things you can control. So what was in my control at that point in time? They released me. They said, go to bed when you need to go to bed. Give him the dignity to be who he is and get up with your children and take care of them. Because what I was doing, and this is an interesting piece, is I was saying, I'm not okay until I know you're okay. So I need you to be okay first before I'm okay. And I'm going to figure out a way to make that happen. I am parenting another adult and we know where that gets us. So I had people to parent. They were very dependent on me. They were three and five years old. I needed to parent them, but I was parenting outside of my, uh, outside of my regular sphere to make myself okay. Oftentimes what I see with people setting boundaries is I'm setting a boundary for you, another adult, to make me feel okay. So then we drop back into what do you need to do for your self-care and be compassionate with yourself so that you can show up the best that you can show up. You can be the God-designed woman you're designed to be. That's where you need to start with boundaries because as we just talked about, if I'm trying to save him through trying to teach him what he needs to do that is correct for him to do, one, do I really know what that is? And two, can I enforce it? No, I can't. So that's the place to start with boundaries. And then the next phase in boundaries is where I find a lot of people getting clarity on what it is you really want, because maybe you set a boundary and it gives you something you don't want. And you're like, wait, I got something that's not working for me. And, and another piece of that is, you know what? 
I am happy to be with you when you are not using, when you are in a frame of mind that you can be present for me. And I know after five o'clock, you're not available to me. So I'm not going to do things with you after five o'clock. Or I have experienced with you that when you come home in this mood or these incidences have occurred, then that's a place that you and I can't connect anymore. And so I'm going to excuse myself. Again, these are all things that I have control over rather than trying to control you. So that's the shift in where you can practically look at boundaries. Because women will say, well, I told him not to drink in the house. Okay, if you're married and that's a joint property and you are both in the house, I'm wondering how you're going to enforce that. Now, does that mean you need to go to your moms, your sisters, your girlfriends for a little while while this is happening? Does that mean that you need to invite maybe some church people into your life as the Bible tells us to, to kind of work with that scenario? What does that mean that you are actually able to control rather than standing there with the double hip and the finger wagging? Because what we know is the person who is dealing with the addiction is most likely feeling worse about themselves in their scenario than you are. And you're pushing that is increasing their likelihood that they are going to move away from you and move more towards something that doesn't require that kind of attention and connection. Wow, that's so deep. And that's very helpful for someone who might find themselves in a situation because they really might be thinking they're helping, uh, but they might be pushing someone further along. So let's let's say you do see that they have an addiction and you don't want to push them towards that addiction by them retreating from you and going towards whatever um, calms them or helps them to feel better. What is a way that is helpful to approach this? Like in addition to, you know, obviously you set your own boundaries, but how do you suggest that we support them if we see as an issue, but we understand we can't be baby Jesus? So what is the in-between for helping that person? Thank you for asking that question. I want to do one caveat. If you are in a dangerous situation, then you need to do something about that. The addiction will degenerate and the violence will escalate. So I don't ever want to say to anybody, you know, try these softer ways if you are in danger. So make sure that you're, you're safe because actually close to 70% of people who are active are also holding down a job. You know, they're wearing a suit and tie. They may be, you know, showing up at community events, coaching the soccer team, all those types of things. What we're separating from, and I have a children's book that talks about it, is you can love the person and not like the addiction or hate the addiction. You can separate those two things out. And that's where people get so puzzled. So what is it that you can do? Well, the first thing you start with is what is it that you want? What, what is it that's important to you? And getting a list of that is, is really helpful to know what it is that you want because we create sometimes these Disneyland fantasies and what you've said earlier is marriage is hard. So even if there is no addiction or you're just dealing with normal job, children raising, you know, community building type things, there are still struggles. So that's not going to go away. What you can do is invitations to change. So 
what you're looking at is connecting in ways that don't have to do with the addictive behavior. So, hey, I'd really like to have dinner with you if there's a night that you don't want to come home and drink six beers or eat some edibles or work on the computer or play video games. Let's plan on that. So that's an invitation. You can also leave things as they are. So that's the other thing that we talk about. The, the key word often is enabling, but really it's unhelpful help. Doing things for people that they don't want done in the first place or that they can do for themselves. So one of the first pieces is to let life be as it is. Stop cleaning up the mess. Don't call into work. Don't clean up the house in that area. Don't take care of things that are directly for them. Don't do those things and let them handle their own issues. Because as often as wives, we think, no, the house is a reflection of me. This is what I need to do to make it look nice for everybody. And I'm just going to take care of it. Well, if we're taking care of everything for everybody, then we become a dry well. And then we become, in my case, really angry, really resentful. And then I had to justify my anger and my resentfulness. And then I had to find somebody to blame. And then they needed to be blameworthy. And look right there. I've got the perfect scapegoat. So it just goes into a downward spiral. Knowing what you want, knowing the timing of when the person you're with possibly has the ability to connect and designing some things that are comfortable for them to connect with and then letting things look like they really are and not covering up the masses. I think that third one is the hardest part because you know we want to show up at church. We want to show up at the grocery store and go everything's okay. Well it's not okay and we can't help you any of us in the community, we can't help you if we don't know that something's going on. So find those trusted people, find those trusted elders, find that trusted Celebrate Recovery group, get some support so that you can take the steps you need to need to take. Mm, so helpful. And I, I wonder in all of this, and you kind of sprinkled this throughout your interview, where did your faith and spirituality play a role in the the healing of your marriage and your in your work oddly enough we're living out on these 20 acres um my husband's working in the evening so i have mornings free and the kiddos are still asleep so i'm getting up early walking with the dog skirting around all those chickens and <laughs> walking with the dog in the morning and praying and crying praying and crying praying and crying praying and crying kneeling praying and crying praying and crying i am in my early 40s at this point and what I knew was when they lay that first baby in my arms, it was the first connection of how I knew God felt about me because other mothers can, can probably relate to this. They lay that first baby and you're like, I will kill any of you who come near him. That's right. I will protect him at all costs. I don't care what it was a love like I've never known before. And it cued me into this is how the father loves me. So my guys are three and five and I'm walking and praying and I'm walking and praying. I'm reading the purpose driven life uh, out of Saddleback Church. And I'm thinking, God, it's time. It's time. It's time. Well, God gave me the scripture. He gave me Second Chronicles 20. And if you know the story, there are people coming against the nation of Judah. They're coming in and God says, 
wait a minute. Don't do anything. Get dressed. Get your armor on. Go down there, but don't do anything. And the uh, the other three armies attack each other and kill each other. Now, what did they do before that? They sang praises. They prayed. They said, God, we don't know what to do. These are really big people. and We are so stuck. So he gave me that strict scripture. And it was the first time I'm a pretty driven person. It's the first time in my life that I went, I don't know what to do. So I did what I coached my clients to do. I reached out to my communities. I said, look, this is going on. If something really goes down, I want you to be aware that I may need help. And I reached out to all of those people, did the walking and praying, um, did some fasting. I'm not saying you have to do all of this. God moved, but he moved in a way that I didn't expect. And it was because I laid it down, because I stopped trying to fix it, because I stopped trying to make this happen. And as I said, I grew up in church, you know, youth group, loved youth group, went to summer camp, went to all those things. But until that baby laid in my arms, I didn't know how much he loved me. And until this crisis came along, I didn't know how much I could trust him. When he moved, we separated for 23 months. The court took over our lives. We had domestic violence charges. We had all those things. But what he did was he made it quiet enough for me to hear. And I just, it brings me to tears almost every time that I went, if you stop long enough, if you rest, child, if you rest in me, then I can move. But as long as you keep playing, God, there's no room for me to be God. Mm, mm, mm. That is so good, Tanya. And it sometimes takes a two by four to hit us. <laughs> for us to get that painful but now you speak with such conviction about it and you're helping others through your ministry so I would love to take a little bit of time to hear about what you're doing now to help others uh, to navigate a similar experience Absolutely. So I've got several several things in the hopper. One of the things that's coming up is in December I'm running the Blessed Family Recovery Summit. What it's going to be is three days of wonderful speakers who are going to be sharing their experience. And we're going to, so our children walk through this all the way. And we have some great resources for parents who are walking through this with their children. That's going to be part of the summit. People are going to come speak there. We're also going to walk through the emotions. That's what you talk about a little bit, or really you have some great classes around on your website. People don't think about the grief that happens here. So we're going to talk about grief, anger, um, shame. Shame is a huge one. That's why people don't reach out. We're going to talk about all those things. And then all those are going to have practical components. So that's going to be happening. It's a free summit, seven, eight, nine, virtual, you know, show up, enjoy it, learn things. That's going to be happening. And we'll put more out there about that. And then the personal work that I do with people is I run some group coaching programs and there's such strength. And I know you know this in your trauma healing groups. There's such strength in these group coaching programs of people building each other up. It's a God-centered recovery program for families. Because what we know is the best shot for the person suffering from addiction to have long-term recovery, not just I got sober for a couple months or a couple years or something happened and I went back out again, is for the family unit to also come on the journey too. And the family unit is often left wondering, well, I thought I did everything right. And this is, this is not what's 
supposed to happen and not what it's supposed to be like. Well, everybody in the journey needs to have the opportunity to make their own choices because often we really want to scapegoat that person or persons who are doing what we consider to be out of bounds behavior when really there's a lot of other issues going on in the family that need to be dealt with. So it gives everybody the best opportunity. So this runs 12 weeks. We talk about boundaries. We talk about a lot about self-care, which is far from massages and pedicures. Self-care is difficult when you really do it in a compassionate way. And I don't mean to put you off by that, but it's what allows you to look at the circumstance, pause. That's probably the biggest thing that God's working on me with pause and choose your reaction so you can choose it out of love integrity and alignment rather than jumping in and making things worse because families i really want you to hear this i know you do what you do out of love but oftentimes that unhelpful help just drives that person further away from you and further away from god wow that's so helpful tanya thank you so much for what you do and I wish we had more time, but I'm going to ask this final question for you just to uh, maybe give one final gem for our, our listeners. When you think back to Tanya 20, 30 years ago, even, if you were to speak to that younger version of Tanya, what words of advice would you offer her? This is what I would tell her. This is what I would tell any young lady is you are fearfully and wonderfully made. I know you don't believe it right now. I know the media is giving you things that you don't understand, but the husband that you need to seek first is Christ. He loves you. He knows you. He wants the best for you. And guess what? He's able to fulfill every single need. And if you seek him first, he's going to bring that man into your life that really connects with you, that is able to cherish you and love you like Christ designed him to love you, like Christ is designed to love the church. So seek that relationship with both hands and never let that go. Amen. Thank you, Tanya, for being here. It was a wonderful, wonderful conversation that we just had. Thank you, Jocelyn. I really appreciate it. And thank you all for tuning into today's episode. I hope it was a blessing for you. And if it was, you know what to do. Please leave a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. And if you are looking for Christian counseling, visit our website at faithonthejourney.org. Again, that's faithonthejourney.org. So that's it for this week, family. Thanks again for tuning in. And until next time, you stay encouraged and you keep your faith on the journey. I'll see you soon, family.